to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, May 30th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Biden and the House GOP reach a tentative debt ceiling deal. Erdogan wins re-election in Turkey after a presidential runoff. Japan says it's on alert for a North Korea satellite launch. Kyiv and the rest of Ukraine face a fresh wave of Russian attacks. The Texas House of Representatives votes to impeach Attorney General Ken Paxton. A deadly vigilante movement in Haiti is reported to be deterring gang violence. China's first home-built passenger jet makes its inaugural flight. London's Met Police say they'll stop attending emergency mental health calls. The Texas GOP passes bills targeting elections administration in a Houston-area county. And a pencil given to Adolf Hitler by Eva Braun goes up for auction. In our top story, Biden and the House GOP reach a tentative debt ceiling deal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Fox News, CNN, BBC News, and New York Times. On Saturday, an agreement in principle was struck between the White House and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, on a deal to raise the debt limit. It is hoped the Fiscal Responsibility Act will steer the country away from a national default after weeks of heated partisan negotiations. Biden and McCarthy on Sunday settled the final elements of the deal before releasing the legislative text to House lawmakers that evening. The Senate will have until June 5th to consider whether to support the legislation or risk the U.S. defaulting on its debts. The agreement in principle will lift the debt limit until January 2025, while keeping non-defense discretionary spending roughly flat in 2024 and capping it at a 1% increase in fiscal year 2025. While the two-year budget deal does not make any changes to Medicaid, it reportedly increases age work requirements for recipients of food stamps from 50 to 54 and reduces the requisites for veterans and people who are homeless, among others. The agreement also specifies that $10 billion of the IRS's budget and billions of dollars in unspent COVID relief funds will be redirected to preserve domestic programs that would otherwise have been cut. Some GOP members have nevertheless expressed concern over the bill including Representative Matt Rodendale from Montana and Colorado Representative Lauren Boebert. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were our facts. Let's start with the Democratic narrative spin from the Los Angeles Times. In their obstinate push for cuts to federal spending, McCarthy-led House Republicans have threatened to crush the U.S. economy by forcing the country to an unprecedented default. However, this agreement in principle reveals that their goal was exclusively to punish low-income Americans, as the changes will do virtually nothing to reduce government spending. We counter that with a Republican narrative coming from the Gateway Pundit. Democrats have driven the country to the brink of a financial catastrophe. Yet McCarthy has betrayed America by allowing the Biden administration to borrow an unlimited amount of money without imposing any restrictions on federal spending. This deal is a complete disaster that puts the financial future of the U.S. at risk. And we have a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. They predict that there is a 1% chance that the United States will default on its sovereign debt before July 1st of 2023. Well, both narratives agree on something. They hate the deal. They they just both hate it. Yeah, they do. 
I think that you should do your part, though, Scott. And honestly, stop making that daily donut run. It's going to catch up with you two different ways. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) What is uh, our friend Dave Ramsey said? If you could get the guy in the mirror to cooperate, then you'd be rich and skinny. (laughs) I'll have a talk with him tomorrow morning when I'm shaving. Yeah, please do. Because you know what? You're good enough. You're smart enough. And doggone it, people like you. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. Turkey's Erdogan wins re-election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by TRT World, the BBC News, Turkish Minute, CNN, Forbes, and Al Jazeera. Turkey's Supreme Election Council has declared President Recep Tayyip Erdogan the winner of Sunday's presidential runoff against Kamai Kılıç extending his 20-year rule for a further five-year term. With 99.85% of the ballots counted, preliminary results on Sunday night showed the incumbent with a four-point lead over his opponent after receiving 52.16% of the roughly 54 million votes. Voter turnout was 84.22%. Following the announcement of his re-election, Erdogan addressed his supporters from his presidential palace in Ankara. He pledged to cut inflation rebuild the cities that collapsed in the February 6th earthquakes, and promised he would not free former pro-Kurdish party head Selahattin Demirtas from jail. Meanwhile, Kalic conceded defeat but expressed his disappointment with the results of what he alleged was the most unfair election in recent years, as well as his concerns about the future of the country. This comes two weeks after Erdogan achieved a lead of almost five points in the first round, but failed to secure the 50% majority needed to win. He received a further boost last week when third-place candidate Sinan Ogan publicly endorsed his candidacy. Turkey has faced a turbulent year after an earthquake in February, estimated to have killed over 50,000 people, devastated the country, and aggravated pre-existing economic problems. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A, and it's coming from Daily Sabah. Under the leadership of Erdogan and his AK party, Turkey has broken away from a long record of corrupt, ineffective coalition governments to become a regional and international reference in several sectors, including governance and public services. The re-election of Erdogan will preserve the integrity of the state ahead of the upcoming second centenary of the republic. And Narrative B comes from Time magazine. While it is yet to be seen how Ankara will balance its deepening ties with Moscow and its NATO membership in the upcoming years, Another five-year term under Erdogan will surely mean continuation of current policy. As divisions between the world's democracies and autocracies have become increasingly stark, Turkey is dangerously backsliding on democratic institutions and civil liberties. The Metaculous Prediction community is giving us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 98% chance that Turkey will be a NATO member continuously until January 1, 2025. Japan says it's on alert for a North Korea satellite launch. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNN, Al Jazeera, The Japan Times, Guardian, and Korea Jungang Daily. Japan on Monday put its ballistic missiles defenses on alert, vowing to use its Standard Missile 3 or SM-3 or Patriot Advanced Capability 3 or PAC-3 to destroy any projectile that threatened its territory. This comes as Japan's defense ministry issued an order to shoot down any North Korean missile that enters its territory after Pyongyang notified Tokyo of its intention to launch a satellite in the coming two weeks. 
According to the Japanese Coast Guard, the notice stated that the launch window was from May 31st to June 11th and that it could affect waters in the Yellow Sea, East China Sea, and east of the island of Luzon in the Philippines. While these three areas are located outside Japanese territorial waters and its exclusive economic zone, Tokyo worries that the rocket could fly over the islands of Okinawa Prefecture or other areas. North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un has approved final preparations for the launch, as Pyongyang has allegedly completed its first military spy satellite, which is said to enhance its surveillance capability and improve its ability to strike targets. South Korea also warned the North to withdraw from its launch plan, claiming it would threaten regional peace while seriously violating UN Security Council resolutions that ban Pyongyang from using ballistic missile technology. All right, we have some opposing narratives on this controversial story. The pro-establishment narrative comes from the Financial Times. North Korea's satellite launch is a dangerous provocation that cannot be allowed to proceed. A working spy satellite would strengthen Pyongyang's ability to conduct a preemptive strike, as well as monitor potential incoming threats from the U.S. and South Korea. The establishment critical narrative is coming from OAN News. North Korea's satellite program is simply defensive in nature. Pyongyang has a right to exercise its sovereignty and justifiable self-defense in response to the confrontational moves made by Washington and Seoul. A successful launch will help defend North Korea against future attacks by the hegemonic U.S. and South Korea. And we've got another nerd narrative. The Metaculous community predicts that there's a 72% chance that Japan self-defense forces will have tested a Tomahawk missile by mid-2027. And an update on the conflict in Ukraine as explosions are reported across the country following further Russian attacks. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Ukraine Forum, and CNN. Multiple explosions were reported across Ukraine after Russia launched further drone and missile attacks into the country in the early hours of Monday. Valery Zaluzhny, commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces, said, Last night, the Russian occupiers attacked military facilities and critical infrastructure of Ukraine with cruise missiles and attack drones. Ukraine's Air Force said Russia launched 40 missiles, 37 of which it claimed to have destroyed, while further claiming that 29 of the 35 drones said to be deployed were also shot down. Meanwhile, in Kyiv, Russia also reportedly launched rare daytime attacks on Monday. It was not immediately clear whether any attacks penetrated air defenses, but damage from falling missile debris was reported in multiple parts of the country. One civilian was reported injured. Drones and missiles were also shot down over the regions of Poltava, Mykolaiv, and Odessa. There were no reports of casualties or damage except in Odessa where drone debris sparked a fire at a port before it was soon extinguished. However, Russian strikes in the Kemelnitsky region successfully struck a military facility, local officials said. The statement said that work to extinguish fires at fuel depots and storage facilities were ongoing while stating that five aerial vehicles were destroyed. It did not clarify whether the aerial vehicles were aircraft or drones. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. The Associated Press is giving us our first spin. It's a pro-establishment narrative. As this war has dragged into its 15th month, Russia continues to terrorize Ukrainian civilians with regular nighttime attacks and has now moved to daytime attacks as well. While missile defenses have become far more effective, a risk remains from falling missile debris. And everyone's got a story of how tired they feel. And the pro-Russia narrative comes from TASS. 
Whenever Ukraine is ready, Russia is prepared to enter peace talks to end this conflict. However, Ukraine must accept certain preconditions, such as demilitarization and dropping its ambitions of joining NATO. The alternative is that these attacks will continue. We have a nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. It says there's a 13% chance that there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict before 2024. Talk about drones being this, you know, great thing that will, uh, you know, protect lives on uh, all sides. But it also makes it a lot easier and, you know, an an easier decision to attack other people. So in the long run, will it save lives or will it cost lives? Because it's easy to just send a bunch of drones in somewhere. I guess maybe we'll find out. This is like the first real war they've used drones in. It's true, right? It's the first war where the sides were, you know, anywhere close to on the even playing field. Turning our attention back to the U.S. as a Texas House votes to impeach Attorney General Ken Paxton. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, New York Post, NPR Online News, the Texas Tribune, Associated Press, and CBS. On Saturday, the Texas House of Representatives voted to impeach longtime state Attorney General Ken Paxton on charges of corruption, including abuse of power and retaliation against whistleblowers. Paxton is now temporarily suspended from his role while he awaits a Senate trial. The GOP-led House voted 121 to 23 in favor of impeaching the Republican Paxton, with all 23 no votes coming from Republicans who called the hearing indefensible and unethical. Paxton also called the impeachment a politically motivated sham. However, the 20 articles of impeachment cite Paxton's 2015 securities fraud indictment, and his relationship with Austin real estate developer Nate Paul, who donated $25,000 to Paxton's campaign. Paul asked Paxton to intervene in an FBI probe, and Texas House investigators say the attorney general circumvented Texas policies to help Paul. The impeachment charges also accuse Paxton of accepting bribes and committing multiple violations. Paxton has strong support among the GOP base, including former President Trump, who called on Governor Greg Abbott to intervene in the proceedings. Abbott is tasked with appointing a temporary attorney general while Texas waits for the impending Senate trial. Two-thirds of the Senate would need to vote in favor of impeachment to permanently remove Paxton from office. Paxton's removal would mark only the third time the Texas Senate ever voted to expel a lawmaker. Thanks for those facts, Eric. The Revolver brings us Narrative A. Paxton's sham impeachment hearing served as a great reminder of which Texas officials are truly on the side of America first and which ones are institutional shills. The Trump revolution showed that most politicians are actually on the same team and that the real divide is establishment versus anti-establishment. Texas Republicans in name only and Democrats are now working together to remove Paxton because he is one of the few officials who care about securing America's border and putting America first. Narrative B comes from National Review. Years of corruption and abuse of power were too much to ignore as the Texas House voted to impeach Attorney General Paxton. This issue is not about partisanship or ideology, but about maintaining the integrity of the Texas government and the office of the Attorney General. Paxton has been involved in multiple criminal cases and can no longer be Attorney General. A report out of Haiti as a vigilante movement is leading to a drop in gang violence. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Reuters, Head Topics, and the St. Kitts Nevis Observer. 
The Haitian human rights group CARD released a report Sunday saying that violence committed by armed gangs in Haiti has fallen drastically, with at least 160 suspected criminals killed in the last month since the emergence of a vigilante justice movement that formed during the simmering humanitarian crisis. The report added that since the Boakal movement began, there were almost no recorded kidnappings over the past month and a decline in gang-linked murders from 146 during the first three weeks of April to just 43 this month. One survey found 70% of Haitians support the group. Card said that the city of Port-au-Prince is where most vigilante killings are taking place. Lynchings, stonings, beatings, and burnings are common forms of killings in the city in which 60% is controlled by gangs. Card believes Boakal likely emerged in response to the cruelty inflicted on the population by gangs and the ineffectiveness of the military, police, government, and global community. Countries have hesitated to assist the unelected government of Prime Minister Ariel Henry's urging for an urgent international response. The government says it needs support, such as armored trucks, drones, helicopters, weapons, and ammunition from the international community, and is calling for authorities and civilians to work together to fight the gangs. It also recommended a study on the psychological impacts of gang violence on future generations. Thank you, Scott, for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. As the UN has already called for, the international community needs to step up and provide military assistance to Haiti if it wishes to ever defeat the gangs destroying the nation. Jamaica is the only country to offer troops so far. But that will not be enough to save a country whose capital city is overwhelmingly controlled by violent armed groups. After first being skeptical of another peacekeeping mission after the U.S. brought cholera to the island, the Haitian people's minds are changing, and the world should change its stance along with them. And the establishment critical narrative comes from the Washington Post. Establishment international bodies, including the governments and media outlets that helped dismantle the nation in the first place, are now calling for blunt force intervention in Haiti. What these people don't understand, or pretend to not understand, is that the Haitian people can revive their country on their own if they were only given the initial tools. For example, sanctioning the Americans and Haitians profiting from the violence to get started. Haitian society is willing and ready to help bring this era of chaos to an end, but the global community seems content to just take a back seat. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 50% chance that Haiti will become a World Bank upper-middle-income country by January of 2050. It's interesting that so close to the United States, there's this basically like anarchic country. It just sounds so wild. That being yeah, I, said, I recently uh, took a vacation to Jamaica, and that's on the uh, UN watch list as well, and I didn't experience anything like that. Now, granted, I spent almost the whole trip at a private resort, so I'm not sure if I got the, the real local flavor. The first Chinese-built passenger jet enters service. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, Guardian, and UPI. The C-919, China's first domestically-built large passenger jet, completed its first commercial flight on Sunday flying from Shanghai to Beijing without complications under the China Eastern Airlines carrier. The state-backed Commercial Aviation Corp of China, or COMAC, has been developing the plane for 15 years, 
which presents the first Chinese challenge to Western aircraft manufacturers. According to Comac's Deputy General Manager Zhang Yujin, the company has received at least 1,200 orders as of last January, with the company hoping to expand annual production capacity to 150 models in the next five years. The C919 is a twin-engine plane with a capacity of between 158 and 192 seats in a single-aisle layout, with a range of between 2,500 and 3,400 miles. The plane first rolled off the production line in 2015, with the first test flights occurring in 2017. The expanding Asian middle class has increased competition in the Chinese market, with European manufacturer Airbus seeking to double production capacity in China. The aircraft is likely to only see use in the Chinese domestic market and in developing countries for the time being, with the aircraft lacking regulatory approval from Western nations. Chinese media hailed the event as bucking the West's aviation monopoly. Thanks for that update, Eric. We have a pro-China narrative from Global Times. China has come a long way from the 800 million shirts for one Boeing mindset during the early days of China's modernization, with the country finally able to start wresting control of the skies from Western manufacturers. This is a huge step forward for China's industrial independence, and is a testament to the stellar technological and economic progress made. The anti-China narrative comes from Jalopnik.com. Most of the components used to build the C919 are imported from abroad, making proclamations of economic independence little more than patriotic puffery. What's worse, there is a strong case to be made that the plane was designed using stolen technology, as China's advanced industrial espionage program has been known to target Western aviation companies. We'll know for sure if they have barf bags. Ironically, those barf bags are made in the USA. Yeah, I have red, white, and blue. That's right. London police to stop responding to mental health calls. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Guardian, Sky News, LBC, and The Daily Mail. Starting this upcoming September, London's Metropolitan Police, or MET, will stop responding to emergency calls related to mental health incidents unless there is an immediate threat to life. Met Commissioner Sir Mark Rowley said the decision was made due to police officers, who reportedly have collectively spent 10,000 hours per month dealing with mental health calls, are not the right people to deal with such a situation, claiming they are failing those in need by not sending medical professionals. Rowley continued in the letter written to Health and Social Care Services by stressing the need for the Met to redress the balance of responsibility and urging health services to take primacy for caring for the mentally ill. Rowley emphasized that the Met is failing Londoners twice by first meeting those suffering from mental health issues with police officers rather than medical professionals, and second, taking officers' time away from focusing on prohibiting crime. A report in November 2022 found police in the region of Humberside saved 1,100 police hours a month and provided more timely care to those in need after implementing a similar policy. Despite this, Zoe Billingham, the chairwoman of the National Health Services Mental Health Services in Norfolk and Suffolk, said she believed the move could be really, really dangerous, with the Met potentially causing a mental health service vacuum and a terrible quandary for those in need. Scott, thank you for those facts. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from Crimeline. Reports show that the police, as they have been increasingly called upon to assist those in need concerning mental health, have done well. However, the police cannot be the fix for a broken system. 
If people are to get the help they really deserve, there needs to be a radical longer-term solution involving other public services. It's not fair to law enforcement to be the last resort for these types of calls. And narrative B comes from Kalkin Media. The move by the Met is alarming and raises questions surrounding what the policy change will mean for vulnerable individuals. In reality, it will be practically difficult to enforce a sweeping ban on providing mental health care, and whether an officer will act on someone's distress will likely be based upon day-to-day subjectivity. The Texas GOP passes bills focusing on election administration. And here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, CNN, and Washington Post. The majority Republican Texas state legislature on Sunday passed several bills to increase penalties for illegal voting and expand state oversight of local elections, specifically in the Democrat-dominated Harris County. They will now head to Governor Greg Abbott's office for a signature. One bill, called SB 1933, will authorize the Texas Secretary of State to, quote, order administrative oversight of a county elections office for complaints surrounding or cause to believe there's an ongoing series of election administration or voter registration issues. Another bill may lead Texas to withdraw from the Electronic Registration Information Center, which was formed in 2012 to help states maintain accurate voter rolls, identify instances of potential fraud, and contact people so they can register to vote. Over half of U.S. states belong to the association. Also under SB 1750, passed by the Texas House last week along party lines, the law would eliminate the position of elections administrator in counties with a population of more than 3.5 million. This would affect Harris County, which has a population of over 4 million. The laws, which will take effect before Houston's mayoral election this fall, will allow Secretary of State Jane Nelson, appointed by GOP Governor Greg Abbott, to oversee county office holders such as clerks and assessors, in more than 250 counties during both the upcoming election and the 2024 presidential election. Top officials in Harris County have vowed to challenge in court both laws which they allege are targeted at them. The Guardian brings us the Democratic narrative. The Texas GOP is using election lies to win political points with its base and take control of the state's largest Democratic district. With little evidence of any election fraud in recent years, Governor Abbott and his hand-picked Secretary of State are trying to throw Harris County into disarray just before it holds its mayoral election, and then give themselves the power to, quote, oversee what they deem as potential voter fraud. This is a dangerous power grab that violates Texas's constitution and the sovereignty of the local election officers. And the Republican narrative comes from the official website of the Texas Senate. These laws are not power grabs, but rather a reasonable response to Harris County election administrators' failure to send out millions of ballots to voters by Election Day 2022. If the Democrats wish to discuss voter suppression, they should think about how their election officers failed to provide the physical ballots necessary for Texans to cast their votes. The legislature has the power and the duty to ensure its constituents' voting rights are not at the mercy of incompetent, if not malicious, local politicians. Our final story, Hitler's pencil, will be listed in a Belfast auction house. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Yahoo News, The Guardian, Republic World, Independent, and the Associated Press. Bloomfield Auctions in Belfast is set to auction off a silver-plated pencil that purportedly belonged to Adolf Hitler, 
at its upcoming event that will also feature a signed photo of the Nazi dictator and an 1869 handwritten pardon from Queen Victoria for Irish rebels. The pencil is thought to be a gift from Hitler's romantic partner, Eva Braun, for his 52nd birthday on April 20, 1941, and is estimated to sell for between 50,000 and 80,000 pounds. That's 61,000 to 98,000 American dollars. The pencil, which has a German inscription of the name Eva, with the initials A-H at the bottom, has stirred much controversy. But the auction house's managing director, Carl Bennett, says the item gives a glimpse into the extremely hidden personal life of Hitler. Bennett says the pencil helps to unravel a hidden piece of history, as it offers insight into Hitler's relationship with Eva Braun. He added that Hitler's appeal came from his public facade of only caring about the nation over personal connections. Bennett also added that thorough research has been conducted to ensure that the piece is authentic. He also acknowledged the reservations and criticisms auction houses face for selling Nazi memorabilia, but concluded that objects from the, quote, darkest and most controversial times in recorded history must be preserved. Earlier this month, Christie's auctioned jewelry that belonged to the wife of a famous German retailer who made his fortune during the Nazi regime. Jewish advocacy groups condemned the sale and asked Christie's to call off the auction, which it did not do. Those were the facts, and our first spin is Narrative A coming from The Telegraph. Selling Nazi memorabilia, or anything belonging to Adolf Hitler, serves to memorialize a brutal regime that massacred millions of Jewish people. Some countries have laws against selling Nazi items, but the UK does not. This has led to people making profits off items belonging to some of the most evil people in human history. Profiting off possessions from Nazi regime is a slap in the face to the Jewish community. Narrative B comes from Kent Online. Auctioning items that belong to Nazis or Adolf Hitler in no way honors or promotes the heinous acts they committed. The sale of such items should be allowed because World War II was one of the most significant events in human history, and people should be allowed to preserve artifacts even if they are from unspeakably dark times. While it's a very sensitive subject, we must be able to separate our strong condemnation of evil from the right to preserve history. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.